Arrived on the right this this week. Um, it's good to be with you guys here again uh, on another Sunday evening, and I hope you had a lovely worship evening last Sunday evening. Who was here last Sunday evening for the worship evening? Some people. And you came back this week, so can't have been that bad. Good to see you. Yeah, um, Brandon, who regularly uh, leaves this service, I'm not sure if Bex mentioned that now in the announcements, he's um, away at the moment in Texas, um, the, the Lone Star State. Amen to Texas, yeah. And he's coming back um, just over a week from now, so um, I'll, see, I'll be seeing you again next Sunday, but then the week after that, Brandon will be back in the house. Yeah. Today is um, Trinity Sunday. Let me just... Um, Sorry, I'm just start something here. Which I just wanted to mention that um, that it is Trinity Sunday, and if you weren't here this morning, you can. I just want to invite you to listen to the message that Rainer Harter brought to us. He's the leader of the House of Prayer here in Freiburg on what the Trinity has to has to say to us in our daily lives. So, just my encouragement on that. I thought the music now, though, that we sung now was um, was very fitting for Trinity Sunday. And so, so maybe if you were here this evening and you thought those lines are um, this, speaking of this great love that God has for us, that you, that you find it difficult to relate to that, um, let me just say that um, the truth of the Holy Trinity is what ultimately gives the truth to God's love for us. When we read in the Bible that God is love, as we read in John's epistle, the way that that is true is that because God in eternity past was not alone, by himself, because God is Trinity, his three persons in one, and in all eternity past, he's enjoyed the fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son always loving and honoring the Father, the Father pouring out his Spirit in an act of um, continual, everlasting love upon his Son. And, and because of the way that, because the God, that is the way God is in his essence, that's the way he exists in reality, that's why we can say God is love. So just to make it clear, if God was just alone, one person, not, not Trinity, just one person in all eternity past, he cannot be loved, for there is no other. There is no object of his love. There is no son on which to pour out his spirit. So that's why we say God is love. That um, points to the truth of the Holy Trinity, that God has eternally existed in a perfect relationship of mutual love in eternity past. And we'll never get our heads around that completely, but we've got all eternity to get used to it. So that's the journey we're on here as Christians. Um, that's our future hope, to spend all eternity in the presence of this God. And if you look back through um, church history, it's people like um, Augustine in the West, maybe Gregory of Nyssa in the East. I don't know if you've heard of those names, who really, um, who, who are known for... Um, thinking deeply about these things and giving us, I would say, great hope for the future. I've said this here at Church at Five before, but the Christian hope is not we're going to be bored playing harps on clouds. That's not the Christian hope. So if you've heard that before, if you've seen that in a caricature in the paper, forget that. The Christian hope is that we'll be raised to new life in new bodies and that the heavenly, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, will come down from heaven onto a new earth and God will say, from now on, I'm going to live amongst my people. And we will, have, we will be invited into this, this trinity, invited into this relationship 
between Father, Son and Holy Spirit because we've been adopted into God's family and we'll spend eternity uh, in, the, in that um, unbroken relationship of perfect love. So that's where Trinity fits in. So don't let Trinity Sunday pass you by without thinking about what the Trinity means for you. All right. Um, end of bracket. End of para. What do you call it? Um, Parenthesis, right? I think in the in the United States English. Am I right there? Parenthesis, parenthesis. Got the pronunciation. Got the pronunciation wrong. All right. So um, we're in a, a series of seven psalms um, again this week. This is week four of seven, so the fourth psalm of seven, and we're in Psalm two this evening. And I'm a, I'm a bit nervous. I'm excited and nervous about the message tonight about the psalm tonight. Um, there, some of the core values that we have here at Church at Five is, on the one hand, that we want to be everyone to feel safe here. What we mean by that is that you can come as you are. You don't have to. Um, there's no litmus test to come here, and you can feel accepted and safe uh, as you are. But another core value that, that moves on from that is that, at the same time as we're wanting to be feeling safe here, is we want to also be feeling or allowed to feel uncomfortable. And I'm not sure how to go down this evening, but it could be that this message tonight makes you feel uncomfortable. That is to say that as God works in our lives, we come here feeling safe and we are accepted here, but God, we, God doesn't leave us unchanged, but God begins to change us. And that can be, for some of us um, at, at times, for all of us, in fact, at different times, an uncomfortable process. And it may be a little uncomfortable um, this evening. I'm not sure. I could be wrong on that. That's why I'm a bit... As I say, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Psalm 2, um, which we'll read in a minute, shows us as well that the Psalms are not just a nice book of poems that, kind of, that, are, that are really unconcerned with reality, with real life. They're kind of just in a... They exist almost... It's not that they exist almost in a vacuum and they just like um, some of the times... I remember... Um, sorry, my thoughts are getting a bit confused here. But just before the service, Yanis was praying that when we sang the songs of worship tonight, we wouldn't just be singing songs, that we'd be truly worshipping God. And so that's the point that Psalm 2, or that's one thing that Psalm 2 shows us, is that the Psalms are not just pretty ditties, as it were, pretty songs um, of a religious nature that we can sing to cheer ourselves up to make us feel better. But they're intimately concerned with ultimate reality, with, um, with real life. So... Let's read Psalm 2 now, together. I've got it here on paper. That's the Bible. I'm just going to put the Bible down here. And I think you'll see what I mean. It's quite different to the psalm we started out with three weeks ago, Psalm 23, which is a very uh, an intimate, personal psalm. This is a psalm which is concerned with the whole universe, with the world, with history, with the systems um, that exist in the world in which we live. It's talking about... Um, um, yeah, um, powers and, and, and um, movements that go throughout all of history. So here's Psalm 2. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire in the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you see right there from a cursory reading, a completely different kind of psalm to Psalm 23, even a completely different psalm to Psalm 145, which we had uh, two weeks ago. So just a note um, before we dive into this psalm. Um, It's often thought that the first two psalms, and you'll all know Psalm 1, Brandon read it um, three weeks ago, sorry, four weeks ago when we started this series, um, the, the picture in Psalm 1 being of the tree planted by streams of living water. It's often thought that these psalms actually go together because they, they, they start and finish with the same thought. In Psalm 1, it's blessed is he who is planted like a tree, a tree beside streams of water. And this one is blessed are all who take refuge in the sun. So they're preparing us as we go into the wider book of psalms um, to interpret each of the psalms, both in relation to ourselves as individual people, so that would be more the focus of Psalm 1, and of course, perhaps of Psalm 23, but also with respect to God's anointed king. And that's more the focus of this psalm uh, in, in respect of God's anointed king, the anointed one. So what we're going to do tonight is, this psalm is basically broke up, broken up into four parts, almost stanza for stanza really, verse 1 to 3, verse 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. And we want to look at those briefly. Um, to see how how the psalm has been interpreted in um, the history of the people of God, and then um, and then look at things that we ultimately the th- things that we can learn from this psalm. And this morning in his sermon, Rainer Harter made a very good point. He said the the point or the goal of all doctrine of all teaching is ultimately love. Referring to what Saint Paul writes in. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that if we have all things, all knowledge, and yet have not love, then it's all in vain. And so, that we will be talking about things that are ostensibly information this evening. But I just do want to say that from the outset, that the goal of this is love. Love for each other, but also love for the world out there. Um, and we'll see, you'll see in a moment, I hope, uh, what I mean by that. So if we just ask the question first, having read this psalm, and it's got some, uh, some interesting lines in there, um, what's, who is this psalm speaking about? Who is this psalm speaking about? And I have three answers for you, uh, if you will, and I think that you'll agree with me that, that it's fairly clear, um, certainly at our point in salvation history, that this psalm firstly refers to the kings of ancient Israel, and ancient Judah. So if you're, if you're new to the scriptures or to biblical history, um, you might not know this, but the, uh, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, is, um, has been passed down to us from the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which existed in the centuries before Christ in the ancient Near East. 
And the greatest kings of those, of those, two, of those kingdoms, so um, specifically Israel, were King David and King Solomon. And this is a very old text, this psalm. And this text is speaking about the coronation or the, the being made king of God's of, of the of the one chosen by God to be king. We see that in verse six. I have in, I, God speaking. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So first and foremost, if we just look at this text in its original context in ancient history, it refers to. Um, the kings of Israel in general, but specifically, most probably David, David being the archetype of those kings, the greatest king. He was the, the pattern after which, or, or according to which, all further kings were judged. If you read through the books of kings uh, in the Old Testament, which interestingly enough are about kings, then you'll see that uh, whenever a king comes to power, uh, specifically in Jerusalem, uh, then a, a commentary is made by the, by the writers of the books of Kings as to whether this king walked in the footsteps, lived his life according to the way David had lived his life. So this, is, this psalm um, refers to David as the, or King David being the, the, the greatest king of ancient Israel as the, the anointed one uh, of the Lord. Anointed, um, and we know that from the story of King David, that uh, in ancient Israel the kings were anointed. That is, they had oil, ultimately, put upon them. Uh, not, not simply because they had too much oil, but because that signified that this person was set apart for uh, ministry, for the Lord, and in terms of the kings, that is, to rule God's people. So that would be the first fulfillment. That This is a, this is a psalm talking about how the kings of ancient Israel are the anointed ones of God and how they faced the rebellion, the aggression, the resistance of the nations around them. And if we read the Old Testament history, we can see that that's in fact, that's what happens from the beginning of the history of the kingdom of Israel right through to its end. We're talking about countries such as Moab or Edom or the Philistines or Aram, Damascus or later the Assyrians and the Babylonians. These are the kings these are the, the nations that are rising up against the Lord and against his anointed, coming against ancient Israel and, and, and her king uh, with, you know, in, in battle with chariots, horsemen, infantry, rising up, rebelling against God's rulership. But um, we can also say, um, looking to the early church in Acts chapter 4, that this psalm is talking about our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus being, of course, um, the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one. In Greek, that is Christos. That's where we get the word Christ. That just means that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the one who is um, chosen by God to be king. And we see that in Acts chapter 4, where this psalm is quoted. Uh, if I read from verse 24 in Acts 4, the early church gathered together in Jerusalem, they say this together. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they quote this psalm and then they interpret it 
um, as uh, referring to their moment in history. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So it's clear that um, according to the, the divinely inspired scriptures of the New Testament, that this psalm is also speaking about Jesus Christ. So the anointed one, the anointed one or the king is Jesus Christ. And the third way I think that this finds fulfillment is that it's not just, it didn't just find its fulfillment at the moment when Jesus lived on this earth, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate and Herod and the nations and the, the, the Gentiles there, but it is, in reality, it describes the way the world has been even since that time. So, when, um, when the question is posed in the first section, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain, that conspiring, that plotting hasn't stopped. Didn't, it wasn't like that Pilate and Herod were the last rulers or kings to, to plot or conspire against God or against his anointed one, Jesus. So that means that even in our age, the, the question that the psalmist is asking is a question that we here at Church at Five, we here in Freiburg, Germany, uh, need to be asking. So let's, let's go through um, the psalm now, um, just briefly. Uh, I'll read again each section and just make a few comments to help us understand it and then, um, then ask sort of the practical things. What can we take away from this psalm? So, why do the nations conspire, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The psalmist here, he's speaking as a member of the people of God. So, in our day, transported to us, it's one of us, or all of us together who are speaking this. That is to say, he is amazed, um, and uh, he, he's amazed at this plot of the nations, of the peoples of the world, that cannot possibly succeed. So he, he's rooted in trust in God and trust in God's um, promises. Why do the nations conspire? He's asking the question if they really knew who God was, if they knew who his anointed one was, they would never conspire, they would never plot. I remember the, the song from the, that old cartoon movie, Prince of Egypt. Um, anyone see Prince of Egypt? Yeah, favorite, Christian favorite. There's that song, uh, Look at Your Life Through Heaven's Eyes. Good song, isn't it? And I think, um, I think that's, that's what the psalmist is, 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 is astounded to think that some people, or the, 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 the nations and the kings of the earth... Ignorant of God, ignorant of his power, ignorant of Jesus Christ, his anointed king, would plot against God, not realizing that God is all powerful, not realizing, as we'll read in the next section, that God is sitting in heaven laughing at them. So he's, he's amazed that, that they think that this plot can conceive, because uh, can, can succeed, because ultimately, as we see from verse 9 uh, later on, that they're plotting their own destruction, because. Um, the Lord says to the anointed one, says to Jesus, you will break these rebels with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Such strong words there. So ultimately, he's amazed. How can people be so blind that they're plotting against the living God? 
So, this is what the, what the psalmist has in view here is a universal, unified rebellion against God on the part of the nations of the world. I'll say that again, a universal, unified rebellion against God on the part of the nations of the world, led by their kings and rulers. We see that here. The nations are conspiring, not just one nation, but all of the nations, the peoples, that's, that's kind of double speak. Why do the nations conspire the people's plot in vain in order to convey the idea this is everyone, this is all of the nations of the world without God. The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together. So they're forming an alliance, a rebellion against God and against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. And what they're trying to do here we see in verse 3. That we see here in verse 3, they want to throw off God's divine rule and escape from the reign of Christ. Let us break the chains of the Lord's of the Lord and his anointed king. Let's throw off the shackles. They want to get rid of godly rule over the nations, godly rule over their lives. And in the New Testament, this spirit is identified by the Apostle John as the spirit of Antichrist. That is, or, or the spirit of lawlessness as it's called in, uh, in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. That is, it is, is it a, at its heart, a spirit that is against Christ, anti-Christ, anti-meaning against in that sense, and a spirit that also means to take the place of Christ, anti also meaning to take the place of, to set, to set themselves up as the rulers of the world, to set themselves up in the position of God and of his anointed king, Jesus Christ. So then we see in the second part, the response, the eternal response, that, so that is the response back in the days of Israel, the response in the time of Herod and Jesus and Pontius Pilate and the response at our time and in the future as well. The one enthroned in heaven, verse 4, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This is such a great verse for us to read as Christians. We get a view of the strength and the majesty and the, the, the power of our God. God is not at all concerned about this in that sense that he's worried that they could really succeed. Not at all concerned. And so for when, just as a, as a side note here, when we're out in the world, we want to have this attitude. There's no, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. We can, we can know that our Lord in heaven scoffs at the schemes of the rebellious world that we're faced with every day. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So in spite of universal, unified rebellion against him and his anointed king, um, Lord, the, our Lord in heaven laughs, he scoffs at them. He shows them no respect I think, there's, I think there's something beautiful about that, that God scoffs at these people. He doesn't give them the time of day. He doesn't take them seriously and kind of note down their rebellion in the sense of, well, oh, I have to deal with that. He just, he laughs it off. He's completely unaffected, unthreatened in the slightest. We see here God is enthroned in heaven. He's the all-powerful, rightful ruler of all. It's what I mentioned at the start with this psalm. This is not an individual psalm of worship or relationship like we saw with Psalm 23. This is telling us something about the reality of ultimate, of, uh, ultimate power balance in the universe. There's no dualism here of, in terms of a war against, between good and evil and they're about roughly the same in terms of their power and it ebbs and flows and sometimes good is ahead and sometimes evil comes back. This is God. He's enthroned in heaven, not concerned. I laugh at you. I scoff at you. 
says our Lord God. And he rebukes them and terrifies them in wrath and anger. And, and anger. Sorry, pronunciation, terrible, this evening. So the Lord is not affected by this. He can't be unthroned, but he doesn't pass over rebellion against him. His anger and his wrath, this is important for us to realize because we live in a time, in, in, a, in a, the, the world at the moment, especially here in the West, um, we don't like talking about things like anger and wrath. We don't like talking about things like punishment. Um, that's just not the way the, the zeitgeist is here at the moment. So it's important to note that this anger and wrath are just. God is not being capricious here. God is not being unfair. He's not being hard on them. And come on, man, he's up a little. God is being just. He is giving them their due. They have rebelled against the true king, rebelled against the true ruler of the universe, and God is fully justified in placing his anger upon them. And we see here, God, um, God says here how he rules this world through his king, his anointed one, in verse 6, I have put, I've installed my king, Jesus Christ, on Zion, my holy mountain. So Zion being, of course, the, the dwelling place of the Lord. And just as a side note for us as Christians, we, we celebrated this a few weeks ago on Ascension Day. In, in, Jesus is not yet come as a king in Jerusalem. But when Jesus ascended into heaven, that's when he was installed in Zion, the dwelling place of the Lord. That's where we read in Ephesians that when he ascended on high, he took cap captivity captive. He gave gifts to men to his church um, that's when he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's when he was acknowledged that all he had come to do, his ministry, uh, his, so his birth, ministry, death, resurrection, that was kind of crowned at the ascension. And now he sits in, in the presence of the Father, enthroned in heaven, and he is in Zion, the dwelling place of the Lord. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised at this wrath and anger because we see this righteous wrath and anger in Jesus' ministry. In Jesus' ministry, especially against um, the, the, the leaders and the rulers who abused their authority. And I'm sure you know that. Obviously, the, the, probably the most famous example is the cleansing of the temple. So then now in verse 7, we see that it's Jesus himself or the anointed one in the psalm uh, who is speaking. Where he says here, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, so the Lord God said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. So it's, it's Jesus Christ, the anointed one, speaking here. So in spite of the rebellion, he sits on his throne. In spite of the rebellion, he will proclaim what God has said to him, and he will take up his kingship. And we see here that the king here is a son of God, and just um, just to make a note of that, in 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 the Bible in the Old Testament, Adam is called a son of God, Israel is called a son of God. It's not referring here to a biological act of creating a son; it's referring to um, God adopting somebody to serve as His son in a particular ministry. We think of the promise that God gave to David through the prophet Nathan in Second Samuel seven. So this is what God said to the king, to King David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, so you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So it's the flesh and blood son of David, that's King Solomon. And, and God is saying here, I will be his father, he will be my son. I'm adopting him to, to fulfill this ministry. This is one of those prophecies, one of those promises where on the one hand it's referring to Solomon in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense it's pointing forward to Solomon's descendant, ultimately to Jesus Christ. And so we see here in verse 8, um, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of your earth, um, the ends of the earth your possession, that this cannot refer uh, in fullness to just to, do, to David and Solomon, whose large Israelite kingdom never ruled over the nations and the ends of the earth. Never at all. Rather, we see that this refers to the inheritance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, given to him by the Father, not by Satan, and nor are they his to give. We remember the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus is taken out into the wilderness, and Satan says, and shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. Saying to Jesus, if you'll bow down and worship me, then I'll let you be the ruler of all of these kingdoms, and they'll acknowledge you, Jesus. But they're not Satan's to give. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples soon after, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But rather, we see that this is fulfilled ultimately through us. We're sitting here a long way from ancient Israel. And we remember that Jesus' words where he said to his um, apostles, go into all the world or go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This gospel will be preached to all the nations, then the end will come. Go to all nations. This is how this promise is fulfilled, that Jesus will be king over all the nations. Remember that gospel, the word gospel um, refers to the announcement of kingship refers to the announcement, who is the true king? It's not Caesar, it's, it's Jesus Christ. As we read in, in Psalm 72 here, may all kings bow down to him and all the nations serve him. And now we have these, these troubling passages where um, God speaks to the son saying, you will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The rod of iron symbolizes strength and unbreakability. It's Jesus' kingdom which will prevail. Jesus' kingdom which will prevail. And dashing them to pieces, I think there of Daniel's prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, his vision of the various kingdoms that would come, both in his time and afterwards, that the kingdom of the Babylonians, as we all know, and the kingdom of the, uh, the, sorry, the Persians and the Medes, uh, then the kingdom of the Greeks, and later the kingdom of the Romans. And if you remember in Daniel's vision at the end, this, this construction was dashed to pieces, dashed to pieces by what represented Jesus' kingdom. So ultimately, what, um, what this verse is saying is that the kingdom of Christ will destroy and swallow up all other kingdoms. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, his victory over sin and death, is the true ruler and king of this world. So in light of these truths that have been spoken here by the king, by the anointed one, and by God himself, the Lord, the psalmist now uh, concludes the psalm with these words, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Therefore, so there's a logical conclusion in view of these things being real, being reality, being the way things are. Therefore, be wise and be warned. Be wise. Make a wise decision. Make a wise response to these things. Be warned. Don't ignore these things. These things will soon take place. Serve God. Don't keep, don't stay on in rebellion, but rather come and serve God, serve the Lord. And it's, it's interesting that um, true, it, it's really, these kings of the world, they want to break free of the law. They want to break free, free of Jesus' rule. But, it's, but ultimate freedom is to be found, ultimate life, peace and freedom is to be found in submitting to God, in submitting to Jesus Christ. Because God is our creator, because he desires that we live, as Jesus said, life to the full. It's actually, um, it's actually a subordination to God, our coming before God and serving him, which results ultimately for us in peace and life. Rebellion from God ultimately results in death and destruction. So the psalmist here is calling for true worship of the true God, as we find out from Jesus in the New Testament, that is worship in spirit and in truth. And it says here then, kiss his son. That is to, to honor the son, to express homage to the son. And the, the psalmist finishes here with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. All of those who come. Now the psalmist has now taken his view away from merely the kings and the rulers of this earth to include all of us here tonight. All who take refuge, all who are wise, all who are warned by these words, all who understand this is reality, this is who the true king is, Jesus Christ, and this is who the true Lord is, the Lord God in heaven, unaffected by the, the plots and schemes of man. Blessed are all those who run to him, take refuge in him. That sums up what we've just seen in the verses before. That is who serve the Lord, who celebrate, who find true joy in his rule, in his kingship. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the psalm ends, so Psalms 1 and 2 end as they began with blessed is he, we end with blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, that's a quick look through Psalm 2. What, the, the second, the, I just want to finish this evening by, um, I've titled this, this last section, What We Need to Learn from Psalm 2. And I don't know how it was for you, maybe you're already a bit uncomfortable after all of that smashing and dashing, in the psalm, um, sorry, keeps going down. But I've titled this this little bit "What We Need to Learn from Psalm 2, Four four points um, in the next five or ten minutes. The first thing is that we have to take we have to we have to take this on board: the reality of worldwide, universal, unified rebellion against the Lord God and against his anointed one, Jesus Christ. And this exists in the areas of uh, politics, religion, and 
morals. And um, I want to give you a few examples of this, but um, I just, I'm just I'm searching for the right words to, um, to introduce this. So let me, let me just say a few things. That is to say that we don't have to be, as the, as the psalmist showed us in the psalm, we don't have to be afraid. So we're not saying these things out of fear. We're not saying these things out of an us-versus-them mentality. We're locked in, in here in a little fortress cinema, talking about the big bad wolf outside or the big bad world outside. Rather, as I said, all, all doctrine has love as its ultimate goal and what Jesus has told us in the New Testament is that we need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute them. So that's the for, for, for those who persecute us. We want to be praying and loving our enemies. But we also need to be aware of this rebellion against God, that it is unified, universal, that, it's, that it's, it has always existed ever since our, our first parents fell in the garden to the original form of this lie, of this rebellion. It has existed and exists in our time. And if we're not aware of these things, Jesus makes a comment, interestingly, to the religious people, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, where he says to them that you're able to interpret the weather, but you're not able to interpret the signs of the times. And that is a word of judgment of Jesus on the Pharisees as saying, you hold yourselves up to be religious leaders. You hold yourselves up to be wise in leading the people of God, but you're actually no good at working out what's going on at this point in history. Namely, in that point of time, they had completely missed that they were standing in front of the Messiah of Israel. So we need to be aware here um, of this unified rebellion against the Lord and his anointed one. And let me just read you a text that some people would say just goes right off the scale. Uh, Revelation 18, verse 1 and following. Uh, there we read uh, the Apostle John having this vision. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, for every detestable animal. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her excessive luxuries." Then I heard another voice say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine, she will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Ouch, but that's the Holy Scripture, the vision that St. John had on the island of Patmos. That is to say, Babylon here is a word that is used to describe the world system, the system of religion, government, finance, politics that exists in rebellion against the Lord, in rebellion against Jesus Christ. And John has a vision of this system coming, crashing to an end when it's finally brought under the judgment of God. 
And we see there the, uh, the true judgment of God on this system. But we need to be aware that this system exists here and now in the world around us. And I said just briefly in political, religious and moral areas. That is to say we need to be aware that this rebellion will be lived out in the political arena and the societies in which we live, in the religious, including inside the church, and in the moral arena, the way people uh, live their lives or told to live their lives. And we need to be aware of that. Again, the motivation needs to be clear, crystal clear. We're not saying this out of fear. We're not saying this out of hate. We're not saying this because we're like a cornered animal lashing out at things we don't know and don't understand. But we're saying this because we want to be clear-headed, sober, understanding the signs of the times and therefore going out with the full knowledge of this in order to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, that they might um, join us here in the church, that they might be saved out of this system, that they might be saved into salvation, that they might come and kiss the Son. That's what we want. We want with St. Paul to take every thought, every ideology, every philosophy captive that sets itself up against the gospel of Jesus Christ, the theology that God has given his church in revealing himself as Jesus Christ. And, and Paul calls this a spiritual battle. So the battle of philosophies is a spiritual battle against high places. So just to, again, the... the, the um, the examples are many in the political arena today. We see in many nations, many nations trample openly upon the, the free, uh, upon the rights of their people to follow Jesus Christ. If we, if we look, um, we're running a bit out of time now, but if we look basically quickly at the Bible, God has set up three spheres in creation. There is the sphere of the state, the society, there's the sphere of the church, the people of God, and there's the sphere of the family. And we see in, uh, in the political area, one um, area that this unified rebellion um, is expressing itself is in the state massively overreaching into the area of family and into the area of the church in order to tell the church what to do, i.e. by restricting religious freedom in many countries. You'll be killed to be a Christian if you're part of the church or else in legislating to force the church to conform to the wishes of the state. This is rebellion against the Lord. This is overstepping the boundaries that the Lord has given to the state. Where we read in Romans 13, the Lord has given the state in order to promote the good and punish the bad. And ultimately to promote the good means to uphold the dignity of human life, to uphold the dignity of the family, of marriage and the family. And to allow the church to live with a clear conscience before God. We see that in the religious area where the church throughout history has been racked with false teachers that Jesus warned us about who desire to pervert us away from the rulership of Christ and lead us, as it were, up the garden path. And we see even in our day churches abandoning, abandoning the orthodox faith that's been handed down since the apostles, abandoning the teaching of the apostles on how we as Christians should live our life on how we as Christians should believe in God. Uh, two examples there. Um, I, I see many Christians, or not many Christians, I should say. I don't want to just throw words away. But I, I see more and more uh, Christians abandoning the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. 
and therefore throwing away a knowledge of the true God and basically falling into idolatry to worship a God of their own creation. But I also see churches throwing away uh, the teaching of the church on marriage and family, which has been clearly given to us by our Savior Jesus Christ from the beginning. And therefore rebelling against God by refusing to acknowledge that when God says, I made them male and female, and therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, we are setting ourselves up to say no the way you made them God, we're not going to accept. This is rebellion against the Lord. What, else, what we also learn from Psalm 2, and again, speak to me about any of these things after the service. The utter futility we learn of all such rebellion and corruption. The Lord will crush this rebellion. We need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of this. This is for us. For um, There's two things we need to take away, away from this. One is great comfort. We can trust our God. In spite of all the setbacks we might see at the moment on the political scene, in terms of the loss of religious freedom here, or the crushing of Christians around the world in persecution, we don't have to lose heart. It's ultimately futile. God will prevail. The Lord will crush it through his anointed one, Jesus Christ. Let me read you there, and again, this might be uncomfortable, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul, the apostle, the apostle who wrote that lovely chapter on love in 1 Corinthians, writes this to the Thessalonians to give them comfort in their hour of persecution, in their hour of need. He says in verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 1, Therefore, amongst God's churches, we boast about you, Thessalonians, your church, your perseverance in faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Let's just apply these words to us as if we were in Egypt or Syria. We're undergoing a lot of persecution, and we are, because we're one body. We should be feeling that, the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Egypt, Syria, and Iraq. All of this persecution is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Listen here in verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When will this happen? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you have believed our gospel testimony to you. If you're feeling uncomfortable, let me ask you the question, maybe your God is too nice, the God in whom you believe. So this should give us great comfort. God will prevail. All rebellion against him will fail. But it should also, as I say, warn us to take God seriously. To take God seriously. God is not a pushover. God is just not a nice old guy who kind of, oh, we'll let it go. Push it under the carpet. Never mind. Forget about it. I didn't see it. That is not who God is. Uh, there's, a, there's a quote that I'm trying to think of, um, which basically says that modern Christianity, to some degree, um, is where we have a, um, a God who 
is where we've dispensed with the, with, with the heart and soul. I can't think of the quote, unfortunately. It's such a good quote. Uh, where we've dispensed with the heart and soul of the Christian message, which is to say that God is a righteous judge who has sent Jesus Christ to rescue us from his, um, from his judgment, from his rightful judgment for our sin and our rebellion. So we need to get God straight here. The third thing we want to take away from this psalm is the warning or the invitation to kiss the Son, to come to Jesus Christ. It's an individual application, and I say it to all of you here today. You've heard the warning. You've seen the one enthroned in heaven. He scoffs at all rebellion against him. So if you are in rebellion against him, be warned, be wise. Come and kiss the Son. That's the invitation to you tonight and the the. The comfort can be spoken to you immediately upon that. Blessed are you if you take refuge in Jesus Christ this evening. And the fourth thing we want to say is we can take away from this psalm um, what the psalmist, the, the, the attitude that the psalmist has. And he trusts fully in God. He trusts fully in Jesus Christ, the anointed one. And he trusts fully in the promise that the anointed one will inherit the nations, that all of the nations will ultimately come to Jesus Christ, that Jesus' kingdom will prevail. So those are the four things we want, to, we want to take away from this psalm. The reality of this worldwide unified rebellion, let's not put our heads in the sand. Again, that doesn't mean we run scared or we, or we think that there's a demon behind every tree or bush, another object, but that we go out wiser serpents in order to love our enemies, to win them over to Christ, to win them over for the Son. Let's be encouraged that no no matter how the world looks out there, all of this rebellion against God is ultimately futile. The Lord will crush it through his anointed one, Jesus Christ. And let's take to heart this warning. This is true for all of us individually. Therefore, let us come and kiss the Son and have that blessing apply to to us as we take refuge in him. And let's be um, encouraged for the week ahead that we can trust wholly in God like the psalmist does, that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So that's Psalm 2 this evening. I invite Yanis. Is he asleep? No, he's not. I might have been lying over there on the couch. Yeah, to come back up for a final song.